so I have a couple of caveats. Um, I'm not a preacher, really. I have zero theological training whatsoever. Um, I've been in a church my whole life, though, but it wasn't a Mennonite church. So some of my childhood teachings might really not have been the ones you got, or maybe you'll totally relate to what I remember from this passage. I don't know. Also, because of my age, I am in my formative years, I got quite accustomed to seeing the Star Wars movies as they were released onto the big screen. In my formative years, it was very formative. I cannot reference Empire without referencing The Dark Tower, sorry. Just turned out to be impossible. So, I'm doing that. So this sermon I'm calling Choosing Armor. The David family, Saul family, the whole country had prophets. They had a form of government that they had demanded. They had a king. They believed they had God on their side yet they could not imagine a way to defeat Goliath. David's family, Saul's army, the whole country suffered from armor envy. David did not. He'd been out practicing against lions and tigers and bears. Maybe not the tigers, but they were out there. He had God and he had confidence based on practice, based on what he knew he had done. So often when I was told that story as a kid, it, it was like this amazing thing that David was brave enough and people have started pointing out, like, Goliath didn't have a chance against this guy. He probably couldn't see him very well. It's purely based on the helmet. He was carrying literally hundreds of pounds of weight on him. So even though he was a huge man, that in and of itself would have been a huge obstacle to overcome. Trying to chase down some Liam-like person who'd been running around the mountains, taking out lions and tigers and bears with a slingshot. Um, David took a long practical look at what needed to be done and what he would get out of doing it, not everyone's thought about it, not what he could lose by trying. So I'm going to call that a David look. What's the actual problem? Is it worth the risk to solve it? And point out that that is not a particularly holy roller identity building outlook. So back to basics of scripture. What does spiritual um, armor for resistance look like? So I'm looking at this world right now and thinking, if we're countercultural, we need to be putting up some resistance. What, is, what would armor for that look like? What would protection for that look like? What's today's equivalent to armor envy? What are we co-opting that we probably shouldn't be co-opting? Some of these are questions I'm not going to answer today. I just want you to think about them. I've been thinking about them, so you too. Um, where is our confidence? David went out there confident. Where is our confidence? And what have we been practicing? And what's our alternative power base to empire, to the worldly powers? I think that's what Megan preached about last week, right? Um, the alternative power base, the forgiveness. What does protection look like in the kingdom of turn the other cheek, of give your cloak to, of lay down your life for your brother, of, of all things forgiveness? The Old Testament has the beautifully detailed concrete example of choosing body armor. And lo, lo and behold, the New Testament has this metaphorical and flexible armor description, uh, complete with, and I didn't think to ask for a particular translation, so I'm going to read you the quote from my translation about, it says on the feet, because in my translation it said, put on your feet 
whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Whatever. Put it on. That's open-ended. That's a call to think through who and what are the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of darkness, and to think about what works for you to make you ready to go out and proclaim the gospel of peace. It's not a prescription. It's an invitation. Growing up, what I was taught about this passage stuck with me as soon as I saw, oh, this is the armor passage. I remembered three things instantly from that. This is just a lesson, my takeaway lessons from childhood. Never do anything wrong out of honesty to God. Memorize the Bible. I mean, I'm sure people only told me memorize scriptures, but what I took home as a kid was memorize the Bible and pray all the time. Never do anything wrong. Yeah, no perfectionism problems there. Yeah, that's going to be doable. Um, and it certainly <laughs> promotes, I would say, goodness of others. So if you're sitting there trying to perfectly never do anything wrong, one of the more fun things is to point out where everybody else is doing wrong things, right? Um, and it leads to a preoccupation with reputation and appearance of holiness, of goodness, of whatever you've decided in your, okay, I must never do anything wrong. Um, memorizing the Bible, this is not bad. Um, there's actually even basic psychology, I'm a psychologist, um, that says if you don't want to be thinking about something, the best thing to do is to think about something else, not sit there thinking, hey, don't think about the pink elephant, right? So as a way to avoid temptation, as a way to, to avoid errant thoughts, actually memorizing something else, not a bad way to go. Unfortunately, a lot of the Bible does reference um, things that you probably are trying not to think about, but they're telling you not to do them. So, yeah, but okay, there's something there. Um, praying all the time, again, not necessarily bad advice, but I'm not sure how useful. Um, I do pray a lot myself. Everything from the ABA put me not throttle this person to, you know, some thoughtful things. But again, all the time as advice, sure how useful that is as a way to protect yourself. Um, as the take-home message from this is all this passage is about. Because that leaves this passage being all about the individual, right? It's about our internal warfare against thoughts and temptations and burnishing our appearance and reputation. It's burdensome. So it's a little on the order of Goliath's armor carry all that around. I am never doing wrong. I'm memorizing the Bible, and um, I'm going to pray all the time, too. It's pretty inflexible and brittle. Right? You, it only takes, well, even as a kid, and a pretty good kid, I'm sure it took me less than half an hour outside of sermon time to do something wrong. If nothing else, I had to write in the cold, hard question, which is annoying. Um, it's thin protection. So it's some protection, but I would argue that it's thin. And the only protection that it offer, affords against the rulers and the powers of this world is the protection of our reputation. And I was explicitly taught that with this passage about you don't want anyone to have, be able to say a bad word against you. You keep your reputation, you know, and, and then even when the bad people don't realize how great you are, at some point they'll realize they've never been able to say anything bad against you. That is a kind of protection. It's not great, I don't think. Um, not worth throwing out, but I'm not going to rely on that to 
today, especially with the burdensome, time-consuming nature of what you have to do to get it. So back to the David taking a good look at the problem and saying, what are the risks? What do I get out of actually doing this? So best case scenario with those take-home lessons is, I'm okay, and no one can say anything bad about me. This version of protection reminds me of a place where a lot of white people are about racism. After the civil rights movement, where the country passed some very necessary legal reforms, we ended up in a space where whites, who could have done the most to dismantle this racism that's built into our society, got super concerned about not being seen as racist. Now that the ugliness that has been our society is so clearly seen on screens around the world, white folks got more concerned about how people saw them individually and whether they were being lumped in with ugliness rather than actually ending the ugliness by banding together and supporting one another instead. Sin protection. More is demanded than just not being mean or unjust. That's a super low bar for a follower of Christ to take. No backtracking. Protection against evil requires more than just keeping our own nose clean. The breastplate of righteousness is less never doing anything wrong and much, much more being in right relationship. And I have to hat tip Wazi for bringing that up when she was speaking to us a little while ago. We need to move past sin and brittle protection that we end up needing to justify, right? So this is, if you've heard the whole white fragility thing, this is, this is it, right? That you end up having to justify your own non-racism rather than owning what's there and moving on to change racism together. We need more durable protection and not just imagined. Resisting empire alone is exhausting. And just successfully resisting it yourself doesn't bring the system down for everyone else. Maybe a few other people, but not everyone. That's going to require multiple Death Star takedown moments by teams of miscreants strung together over time. This is going to be a one-time deal. It wasn't even in the movies. I know, I know that they needed sequels to make money, but it wasn't even in the movies. <laughs> I've been thinking about our enemies, Empire, trying to think of it as Goliath and to be practical about what some of its weaknesses are. And what stood out to me recently this month when I was pondering over this, Empire divides to conquer. So we resistors need to end division and build community. Empire relies on hierarchy. So we need to be hierarchical, partly because we want to do things differently, partly because that makes us a little bit invisible to empire. They don't really know what to do with people who aren't fitting the slots. Empire relies on myths about the other to fearmonger people into obedience. So we need to be about healing and confidence building, healing relationships, healing systems, and practicing in ways together that build confidence for us to go out there and do so. Also, empire is monolithic. Um, the, the people who can fit in the empire mold better are gonna do better by empire, right? So we need to be myriad. We need to be doing things that allow us to be individuals and not worrying about did we sign up that breastplate of righteousness just exactly right over there and what was she doing? I don't think she tightened her correctly. We need to let that go. So we need an armor to protect a forgiving, empathize, loving, full, quantum grace infused people 
doing these things to resist change. So it's going to need to be individualized and communal. It's going to need to be creative in response to pushback and rule changes. It's going to need to be flexible in order to handle various situations and people because there's empire stretches over a lot. There's a lot of stuff underneath it and within it and working with it. So it's not going to be a one-stop-fits-all. That's not going to work. All three of those things, community, creativity, flexibility, prickly judginess, and perfectionism. That's not as righteous in small as change, but as a matter of practicality. So it's not just, oh, this is the right thing to do with this person, but practically, you can't be judgy and perfectionist and also promote community, creativity, and flexibility. You just can't. Also, one more thing that Armour needs to include besides community, creativity, and flexibility is our own history that's separate from the history and the stories that are told by the powers that be. I guess it's partly because I'm a poet and my husband's a historian, but that one certainly, you know, history's written by the winners. We don't want to give Empire the right to tell the story, to put African American history in one month that white people don't know anything about. Um, we don't want them telling the story of how women got the vote right because it leaves out so many, many details about how rights were taken, how rights were expressed. It leaves out ways in which it got taken. Yeah, it leaves, you know, we need to tell our own stories of those systems. We need to be keeping those here. Okay, that's complex. It's really complex and mind-boggling. And like nothing that exists just sucks. Like famine, parenting. So the other, you know, for those of you who don't know, I have a PhD in child development, oddly enough. And if there is a more complex task than resisting empire, it would be raising children. I'm sorry, it just would be. <laughs> um, and this really just hit me, honestly, this morning that um, a nice model for what we can do for building and choosing our own armor is what's known as attachment in child development. So attachment theory has been around for a while. I think they started talking about it in the 30s. It's sort of looking at what kinds of relationships do caregivers and children have. Um, attachment is about a way to scientifically, to some extent, measure how strong a connection a child has to a caregiver. It started out with moms, but they now look at everybody. Um, it's not about warm fuzzies about mommy and daddy and this and that. It's not about what's the feeling. It's actually about the behavior of the child and whether the presence of the caregiver allows the child to go out and engage with the world. That seems to me like what we need to be for each other. Church can be the secure base for us to go out and engage the world to resist empire. But we need to do it, I think, take the attachment model somewhat seriously, which includes, so you get different kids, different parents, different needs, and it's amazing, most of us actually securely attach to our parents, even though you have some parents who wouldn't give you a spontaneous hug unless someone literally wrote it down and said, you must do this right now, be spontaneous, right? Some parents just aren't, and they will still have a secure attachment with their child. There's other parents that are all lovey-dovey and touchy and whatever, and their kids get securely attached. Um, we managed to 
usually without a whole lot of guidance, figure out how to modify what we do, what kids do, vice versa. This is what we need to do to support. We need to know each other well enough to be able to do this. So, the way you form an attachment relationship with a child is to build trust. Please respond to them the way they need to be responded to. Send them out into the world. Receive them in a way that lets them know they're valued, that they are seen. Some kids who come back don't need to touch you. They can just make little eye contact across the room and move on. Some of them actually don't even need eye contact. Some of them will need to come and get a hug before they can go on and do anything else. You need to know each other well enough to be able to help each other go out and hit the world. So we can build trust and send each other out and feed each other back. The better we know each other, the stronger the trust and the more appropriate our response in any given moment. What are the practices that we already have that are already working on this? Radical hospitality. So part of resisting empire would be moving that trust and that knowledge beyond our most nucleus cases as far as we can, right? So practicing how to do it here among people that we already trust and already know a little bit and moving it out, moving it out as much as we can. We need to start thinking, or I think we need, we can, and I think we need to start thinking about radical hospitality and community building time, not just as rest and relaxation or recreation and fun, but as needed practical practice, like David fighting off the lions and tigers and bears. Only our predators are isolation, anonymity, fear of the other. Armor corps doesn't have to be red. Although they keep losing, but David had a blast running around the mountains taking down lions with his club. I mean, how good would that be? Young, adolescent, healthy male with all that strength running around by yourself, no brothers or the whole army. I'm sure building up his armor, besides new stones in the sling, was actually thoroughly enjoyable. I personally wouldn't enjoy running around mountains, but I'm sure that given the heavy equipment, he did. We can go out together as well. So we don't just have to send each other as individuals. We can go out together, right? whether that's in protest, whether that's, I don't know, building community gardens where people get fed because that's what we know how to do and we can go out and do it. Um, actually, I use that we very, very royally. I can't garden with David now, but I trust there are some people here who can. Um, we already do much of this. So this is more of encouragement towards seeing it as less of a burden and more of just the way that we do life and giving ourselves permission to enjoy some of this. So I'd also say we can memorize scripture, but we can also spend time giving it a good old David look to see what it actually says and how much of it is Goliath armor that other people are scared of that maybe it doesn't actually say what we thought it said. Um, maybe it doesn't say what we thought it said the first time we looked at it, because I'm a rereader. I don't know how many of you reread, but it's amazing how different a book is when you're 16 versus 46. It's different. Um, I imagine that much of the Bible that I think I remember like this armor passage is like that, right? That going back now would, it's written in such a way that it can give you a completely different insight or experience, right? Holy Scripture is just part of our resistance history and story, and it's not untainted by empire. We need to know resistance history and stories. We need to know our stories, 
We need to know the other Death Star takedown moment stories aside from the ones that are told by the powers that be. So we need to document those. We need to start caring. You know, I remember hearing about um, in Berlin, they were putting up a monument to a successful Nazi resistance effort. Um, the police, I think, were being, I think it was the police that were being sort of co-opted by the Nazis and there was an organized resistance where they managed to stop what they were doing and, and people didn't get killed. Like, it just, it just worked. So they were like, we need a few more of these. We need resistance stories that don't involve everybody died at the end because that doesn't always happen. But a lot of times those stories, they're not as dramatic. They don't make Hallmark movies quite as, you know, too jerky. So we've, we've gotten lost and we need to be getting those stories out there as well. Finally, I will go back to, but this passage calls out prayer and prayer for one another. It's both a way to intervene but it's also a way to get to know each other and to feel closer. And I think this is one of those things that it can even be unilateral. You can feel closer to somebody that you have had no interaction with just by praying for them and thinking about them for longer than two seconds when we walk in front of you, right? Um, it's really good maybe if you ask each other for prayer requests or, or knew each other well enough to know, oh, they're gonna need prayer for that. But you know, we can make up stuff. We know stuff about people. I pray for Jim sometimes. I don't know what Jim's daily life is like, but I know he has a lot of pressure with Oprah all the time, and I know that would make me exhausted. So sometimes I just pray that Jim is not exhausted by going to God's little acre all the time. Makes me feel closer to him. Now he knows. He didn't know. Now he does. Maybe he feels a little closer. I don't know. Um, it's possible that prayer is a way to pray in that quantum grace to be attuned to one another. Because we don't really know how that quantum grace thing works anyway. So me praying for someone else, maybe that's one of the ways that prayer works, that it's attuning the energy in that direction. The passage does say that we need to pray in this way. And that's not a bad Catholic thing to remember every week at Mass. So I suggest that we also think about prayer not as just something we can beat ourselves up for not doing enough of, um, not something that we stand out on the street corners and say, oh boy, don't we look good. We are polishing our breastplates of righteousness out here on the corner praying for these evildoers. Um, but it can be something to promote connection to one another. Um, I'm a terrible meditator. I try, Pete knows I try. I come, I come to this place and do these contemplative things, but I just don't do it. I sit there and think things. I know you're not supposed to think things, Jim, but I think things. And a lot of the times I just go around the circle and just pray for everybody there because I don't know what else to do. So I'll just make up prayers about everybody. If I do know what's going on with them, I'll even add that in. Informed prayer. Woo! But it makes me feel closer to everyone there. Um, we could be more organized about it as well. I mean, there, we could do things like prayer partners. We could do things like prayer teams. We could have part of our new Fancy Dancy website be things where you request from there. And those of us who like to and especially meditating, would have something to pray about. David's armor didn't even look like armor, but it worked. The less our armor looks like the world's armor, the more practical and David-like our vision of the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers, the stronger our community, the deeper our trust, the better our chances.